We direct your attention to the book of Acts. We're back to the narrative of Acts, the early church. We're in chapter 13. And there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manin, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Eliamus, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. I must introduce you first to the church at Antioch. If you'll turn in your Bibles back a page or so to chapter 11, you'll hear a little bit about the founding of that church. The reason I mention that is the church at Antioch within one half of a century following this event would become the leading church in Christianity. The church in Jerusalem would subside, most of the Christians would leave, the city of Jerusalem would be uh, very largely destroyed, the temple completely destroyed, and all of the sinner the epicenter of Christian activity and the oldest primate church next to Jerusalem in the ancient church was Antioch. Antioch survived for many hundreds of years and had outstanding bishops and incredible leaders in the church. But it got that way within the first dozen years of Christianity because this is how the church was formed. You remember when there was this great persecution that followed the death of Stephen the martyr and the people were scattered well, those that were scattered, many of them went to Antioch. Hear the story of the founding of the church and the development of the church at Antioch in chapter 11, verse 19. 
Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenist, that is the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. There was always an apostolic oversight from the church in Jerusalem. Remember when something happened in Samaria? Peter went out there to check it out. So now something's happened up at the capital of Syria, far to the north, and Believers are beginning to gather and the gospel is preached and people are going. So they sent one of the, the, the band from Jerusalem, one of the true Jews, one of the strong men of the apostolic band, Barnabas. They sent him up to Antioch to check it out. And when he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he, that is Barnabas, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. You remember now Saul had been converted in Damascus and stayed there for a while and had gone to Jerusalem. And then he had been uh, sort of let go from, from that area because they still considered him a persecutor of the church. And they weren't sure about Paul. But it was Barnabas that took Paul or Saul, who became Paul, to the apostolic group in Jerusalem and vouched for him. And now that he's given this assignment to work in Antioch, in the great Syrian capital to the north, he needs help. And he finds Saul or Paul who had returned back to his hometown in Cilicia of Tarshish, a neighboring province. So Barnabas goes, gets Saul and brings him back and listen to uh, the rest of the narrative. He says, there were great many people added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul and when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Paul and Barnabas and these others that are named are teaching a huge throng of people in this great city of Antioch. And the scripture says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians little Christs. And of course, that was a, an insult, but it was quickly adopted because if there's anything a Christian wants is to be like Christ. That I may know him, Paul would later say, and the fellowship of his suffering and the power of his resurrection and be made conformable to his death. Wish we could follow in his steps. If we could just be like Christ and the teaching in the church at Antioch with Barnabas and Paul and others was such that the people were becoming so Christ-like that they were first called Christians. Now it brings us to our story. After a period of time, it says in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 1, and there was in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and it names them. And we could go into some of the things that church history says, but these, all of these men became outstanding men in the ancient church. These, these teachers that are mentioned, Simeon and Lucius 
And uh, one of them was interesting here, a Menain who was a, a, a foster brother and had been raised in the court along with Herod the Tetrarch. This is Herod Antipas. This is the Herod before whom Jesus had stood and the disciples had been arraigned before him. His brother in, in uh, the princely court had been converted and was one of the teachers there at Antioch. It says they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. And three times in this passage, we're going to hear what the Holy Spirit does. That's why some commentators say that this is not just the acts of the apostles, but it's the acts of the Holy Spirit. Because from the very beginning in the, in the book of Acts, when the Spirit comes in might and power at Pentecost and then begins to come upon various groups across the early church, it's the Holy Spirit that moves. It's the Holy Spirit that sets these men apart. It's the Holy Spirit that sends them out. And then later on in the text, we'll see that it was the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the mighty Spirit of God that came upon Paul as he is teaching and preaching and exhorting uh, there in Cyprus. And so they were worshiping the Lord. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. It'd be a good idea if you can to attend one of the services coming up, the 9.30 or the 11 o'clock service, because as you saw in your bulletin, this is an ordaining and an installing ceremony that we have in our church. It's a ritual with great meaning, and it will involve prayer. It will involve instruction and exhortation. It will involve charges to the candidates as well as to the church, and it will involve a laying on of hands, which was the designation to do the work that the Spirit had called. The Spirit calls, but we recognize the call of the Spirit when we ordain men to office. The ordaining is, involves two things at least. It is a setting apart, saying that these men have particular gifts and these men have a particular call from God to do this work. It's a setting apart, but then it's also a setting in place. We don't ordain men just so they can attain a status. We ordain men that they may do a work, that they may be placed into a particular task. And so these men were set apart, but then they were set on their way because they had been called to a mission. And the mission was to go to the, the Gentiles and to the Jews that were to the, um, out in the ocean, the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and then uh, go back further east and eventually east and north. They're going to take the gospel to the neighboring region. It says they laid there, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So Paul and Barnabas, who had learned to work together as a pretty good team at this point, tremendous amount of uh, trust and love between these two brothers. Uh, the, the fellowship and the camaraderie was there. And they had with them, the scripture says, they had John to assist them. John is John Mark, the young man who eventually wrote the Gospel of Mark. But he was um, a young man of Jerusalem. The thing that made him so strikingly helpful was he had been a witness to many of the events of Christ within Christ's own lifetime. He was in the audience along with his mom and others many times. He was, he was a relative of Barnabas. He was a young man, but he was very steeped in the very origins of Christianity. In fact, in his own narrative, he talks about how he was at the passion of the Christ. He had seen and observed what had happened to Christ, the arrest in the garden, the trial, 
there on the court and then the execution of Christ. So it's important that they have this eyewitness, uh, this young man, John. And it says that they went to the island of Cyprus. Now it's the same Cyprus we call Cyprus today. It's the very large island in the Eastern Mediterranean just off the coast of Turkey or what in that day was Asia Minor. And really what they were doing were, take, were taking the gospel to their neighbor. This was not a far off, this was not foreign missions. The scripture says that there had already been preachers and, and Christians had escaped from the persecution in Jerusalem and in Judea, escaped all the way to Cyprus. So there was already some measure of gospel witness in that place. Not only that, this was a thoroughgoing Jewish community because the city on the east side of the island had multiple synagogues. And Barnabas was familiar with that and so was Saul or Paul. Very familiar with that, with that culture, that Jewish culture that would go to thriving metropolitan commercial centers of the ancient world. And also it was a Roman colony. This was governed by a royal family, a noble family from the city of Rome who were the guardians of the banks of the Tiber. And they had installed one of their family members, a well-known nob nobleman of the ancient world, a Sergius Paulus. Actually, Lucius Sergius Paulus was the proconsul of that island. So when they were on the east side of the island, which had a lot of synagogues and a lot of Jewish community, the scripture says they would go into the synagogues and they would preach Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. Now this is a method that Paul uses everywhere. Everywhere he goes, if there's a synagogue, Paul as a rabbi and a Pharisee has entree to that audience. And he preaches the Old Testament scriptures, all the promises that had to do with the Messiah. And he shows over and over, you'll hear the phrase, he shows that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And they travel then across the island, preaching as they go. And they finally get to the western side of the island to Paphos, the capital. This is a very Roman town. And this is also a very Greek town in terms of its, of its of culture. It's Hellenistic. And so they are coming to this island with the gospel, going completely across the island from the Jewish town on the east to the very Roman town on the west side of the island. And they encounter two men. And I want to suggest to you this morning that these two men that they encounter are prototypical of the reception of the gospel in all hearts and minds. They may be a little bit strong in contrast, but I'll suggest that everybody in this room is in one of these camps or the other. One of these men rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the preaching, the same preaching, the same sermons, the same witness. He hears it and every fiber of his being is repulsed by it and he rejects it. He does not believe. The other man hears the gospel, seeks out the hearing of the gospel, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. And this man hears the gospel and believes. So let's look at these two men briefly. The first, the one that rejects the gospel. 
His name is Bar Jesus, which means son of Joshua or son of the Savior or, or, or the same name, of course, that Jesus had in his human name. He was Jewish. He had to have known Moses and David and the people of Israel in their story. But he's deemed to be right off the bat a false prophet. One of the great problems that Israel always had, well, there were great prophets, but then there were false prophets. And he was one of those men who would seem to misinterpret Scripture. He never saw the Word of God in its right light. He never understood the gospel and the call of the Old Testament to come to God for salvation as the way it should. He was always perverse and crooked. His name is Ilimos, which is just really a title. It means a magician or a wise man, a sage. According to the language here, he was probably a counselor to the other man, Sergio Paulus. He was a man who opposed the gospel. And after dealing with him for a while, and we've noticed this in Paul, Paul will put up with people for a little while. And then after a while, he has to rebuke. Part of Christian ministry, by the way, is rebuking. It's hard to do, especially if you're like most pastors, you want to be loved, you want to be liked, but you rebuke. And when someone is so far out and so blinded and so opposed, you've got to clear the brush for the gospel. You've got to defend the gospel. You have to rebuke the error and the blasphemy. But you rebuke with tears. I don't get the picture here that Paul flew off the handle and just blew up at this man. But when he finally gets around to rebuking him, it's an analysis of this man's character. He calls out what this man was in his heart. He says, you are a son of the devil. You say, that's harsh. Yes, it is. But Jesus looked at the Pharisees in his day and said, you are of your father, the devil. You just have to recognize that which is satanic and diabolical, that which comes from the pit of hell, that which is opposed to God so much that it is identified as such. And before we're too hard on this poor man, let's think about ourselves. Paul will tell us later in the book of Ephesians that we are all the children of wrath. And he will say to us, if our gospel is hid, it is hid to those that are lost who the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded their eyes. And that was the condition of this man. He was in the sway of Satan, thinking Satan's thoughts after him, going after everything that was perverse and wrong. It says he's the enemy of all righteousness. The word righteousness, of course, is a rich, rich word, but one of the key notions in the, in the idea of righteousness in Scripture is justice. And anytime you'll see godlessness and blasphemy in a society or in a person, you will notice that it also will lead to gross injustice. We're starting to see that as our country becomes less godly and more like worldly, satanic thinking, we see the perversion of justice from the highest levels of the Justice Department to the lowest level of the people on the street. 
And that's what happens here in this blinded, godless mind. When he said, you're of your father, the devil, the devil is famous for a few things. He's a liar from the beginning. He's a thief. He's a murderer. He's a destroyer. And he's an accuser of the brethren. I just named about five commandments that Satan breaks every day right there. And he leads people and moves people and influences people into being that kind of person. The enemy of all justice and righteousness. Full of deceit and villainy. Bad things, bad conversation. Always hedging and prevaricating. Always slanting it. Always giving it spin. Not telling the truth straight out like you should. These are characteristics of the, of, of the heart that is tuned against Christ. And, and Paul makes an interesting statement. He says, you make crooked the straight paths of the Lord. You make crooked the straight paths of the Lord. The straight paths are the old paths, the paths that we are to walk in. Ultimately, it comes down to a narrow road and a straight way. And the perverse heart, the unbelieving heart, the wicked heart is always taking it. What does God say about something? For example, perhaps male and female. What's the perversity? What's the crookedness? What's the, what is the, the deviation off of that? There are many. And that's the heart that is tuned against God. The gospel is hid because Satan has blinded their eyes. And that's what Paul said. He said, may the Lord blind you. Let your physical condition reflect your spiritual condition. You're blind. Blind to the truth. Blind to the love of God. Blind to the gospel. Blind to the goodness of God and the beauty of Christ. You can't see any of it. Let your physical condition match that of your spiritual condition. Now, I've always thought that was kind of a curse that Paul put on him, you know, to be blind. But you know what? It might have been preaching of mercy. Paul said, I need to happen to you. You need to happen to you what happened to me. Paul said, I was blinded. And in my blindness, I saw the light. In my blindness, I could now see clearly spiritual things. And so... He called upon the Lord and said the Lord would blind him. And you know what he did? He did just what a blind person would do. He went groping, trying to find people that will help him. Trying to find people that would help him get around. And that's what blind people do. Spiritually blind. They look to somebody else. They look to their friends, their neighbors. They look to their their uh, worldview and their teachers. They look to their friends in the bar. They look to their people that they live every day with. They look to their neighbors. They, they look for wisdom. They go to the psychologist and the psychiatrist. They, they read the how-to books and the self-help books. They, go, they reach for people to help them in their darkness. They don't look to God. They don't look to the source of light and the gospel. But the light of the glorious gospel of Christ will shine forth. And it did in the other guy. And we'll talk about him for just a minute as we conclude. This is the guy we want to be. We want to be like Sergius Paulus. As I said, he was from an old Roman 
family, a senatorial family. The Senate was the, the uh, part of the Roman government that governed this island, not the emperor, but the Senate. This was a senatorial uh, province, and it was ruled by a proconsul, and that's who this guy was. And the Bible says that he sought to hear the Word of God. And the Scripture says that he believed. He believed. First he heard the kerygma, the preaching of the gospel, the straightforward preaching of the saving merits of Jesus Christ. The simple truth that Paul determined that he didn't know anything high and intellectual. He wasn't looking for the wisdom of man. He wasn't looking for clever words. He just simply was going to say, Christ died for your sins. Christ is the answer to your problems. Christ is the one who has given himself to save and rescue you. Whatever your malady is, Christ is the remedy. If your malady is sin, Christ is a savior, an atonement for sin. If your malady is alienation, Christ is a reconciliation. And on and on it goes. Whatever your spiritual problem is, Christ is that remedy. And so he heard the preaching of Christ in the kerygma, the gospel message, and he believed. But here's where we've got to stop and make a point before we're done. And that is that he not only believed, but the Bible says that he saw what had occurred, the whole picture of the ministry of, of, of Paul and Barnabas. He was astonished if you're not careful, you think, oh, he was astonished that, that uh, Bar-Jesus became blind. No, no. No, it says, he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. That's what astonished Sergius Paulus. The teaching of the Lord. What in the world was that teaching? Remember the Great Commission, Jesus said to his disciples, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And he had a teacher. He had Barnabas. Barnabas was a Levite. He was trained in the ways of the priesthood. He was a Jew from birth. Paul was a Pharisee. He was trained by Gamaliel. He was a rabbi. He knew the Holy Scriptures thoroughly and saw the Scriptures in light of Christ. And he was teaching. But there was another teacher in the band, and that was John Mark. And John Mark had been an eyewitness to the events of Christ. And it was John Mark's teaching. So he not only heard the kerygma, the gospel, and believed, which many people have, but you must go beyond that. You must learn of Christ. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, Jesus said. And so Paul and Barnabas and John Mark would not leave until they had, they had taught Sergio Paulus the truth, the teaching of the Lord. It's the word, it's the word didache the teaching, the, the teaching content. And what is part of this teaching content is this, and that is what we would think of as Christian doctrine, what Paul will refer to later as the whole counsel of God. It's a full and accurate and a full-orbed truth and life view. The Christian gospel has in it not just the simple facts of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and things that He has done for us, but it gives us the whole perspective that we need upon life. It is the absolute truth 
about the world in which we live and the, and the way we are to teach one another. The Bible in its full-orbed whole counsel of God in its doctrinal teaching has an ontology. It teaches about the, the being, the science of being and how. It has a full and accurate cosmogony. That is how things came to be. Big Bang evolution or fiat creation how things came to be. It has a full-orbed psychology. Who are we? How and why do we behave the way we do? Christian teaching, the teaching of the Lord is astonishing because it has an anthropology. It tells us about humanity. It gives us some notion of who we are as a species, where we came from in Adam, how we have progressed and regressed through the years. And it tells us about where we are bound and what our condition is. And it talks about the life after and everything that involves Adam and the new Adam, the old race and the new race, the old life and the new life. Christianity has not only a psychology and an anthropology, but it has a sociology. How are we to live in community? How are we to live in terms of loving our neighbor, loving our enemy? How are we to live in terms of serving one another? How are we to live in terms of treating one another? There's a full range of teaching. It has a soteriology, how we can be saved from our sinful condition. It talks about the destructiveness of sin, but it also talks about the destiny of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Here's the point I think Sergius Paulus might have been most interested in. The Bible has a full-orbed teaching of the Lord with respect to jurisprudence. He was a ruler. He was a counselor. Did you know who one of his advisors was? Was old Bar-Jesus, the false prophet, the one that was bitter, the one was... And, and the scripture says that he kept trying to get Sergius Paulus to not pay attention to the teaching of the Lord. But of course, in God's good providence... He prevailed. And because Sergius and Paulus had been converted, had seen the light, had believed and believed the gospel, he was now soaking in all of the doctrines, the didache of the faith, and learning the, the, not only the broad outlines, but the, the background. And, the, and he saw in that the jurisprudence that needed to prevail in his administration. Roman law was pretty good, but Roman law was not complete in every way. And it was only the law of God. It was the law of God that converts the soul. And Sergius Paulus was astonished. Let me sum it up this way. I'm already out of time, so I'm going to relax if you'll relax. <laughs> We've been here a while. We'll be here for another minute. Here's what Sergius Paulus saw. In the teaching of the Lord, he saw the glory of God the perfections of wisdom and understanding. The scripture said, and why does it tell us this in verse 7? He was the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This is the area, this is the arena of the mind, the understanding, the grasping of truth. And when you are familiar with the teaching of the Lord, you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When you hear the teaching of the Lord on any subject, 
It will change your heart because your mind will be enlightened and you will be informed. Things will make sense. Things will be consistent. It will follow, follow a logic that is absolutely unassailable and it will lead to conclusions that are right and upright and righteous. The teaching of the Lord is nothing more than pulling back the curtain and letting us see the beauty and the glory and the wisdom and the majesty of Jesus Christ our Savior.